Tom continues his teaching through the book of Acts, and we'll be reading from chapter 20, uh, the first 12 verses. After the uproar had ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and when he had exhorted them and taken his leave of them, he left to go to Macedonia. When he had gone through those districts and had given them much exhortation, he came to Greece. And there he spent three months, and when a plot was formed against him by the Jews, as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. And he was accompanied by Sopater of Berea, the son of Pyrrhus, and by Aristarchus, and Secundus of the Thessalonians, and Gaius of Derby, and Timothy, and Tychicus, and Trophimus of Asia. But when these had gone on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas, we sailed from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread and came to them at Troas within five days, and there we stayed seven days. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul began talking to them, intending to leave the next day. And he prolonged his message until midnight. And there were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered together. And there was a young man named Eustachus sitting on the windowsill, sinking into a deep sleep. And as Paul kept on talking, he was overcome by sleep and fell down from the third floor and was picked up dead. But Paul went down and fell upon him, and after embracing him, he said, Do not be troubled, for his life is in him. When he had gone back up and had broken the bread and eaten, he talked with them a long while until daybreak and then left. They took away the boy alive and were greatly comforted. Lord Jesus, thank you for these encouraging words. May we live our faith well and with great expectation of what you will do in Jesus' name. Thank you, brother. Good morning, guys. <laughs> I decided to break this, uh, this powerful chapter up into two pieces. Part of that is because verses 17 to, 17 to 38, Paul's farewell address to the uh, elders of Ephesus is one of the most, it's one of the most important verses, passages in the whole book of Acts. Uh, and we need to give plenty of attention to that, so we'll do that next time. Also, because these first 12 verses present uh, a really great encouragement to the body of Christ. Uh, in these verses, we find the Holy Spirit once again turning tragedy into triumph, not to draw our attention to the temporary deliverance that is accomplished here, but to turn our eyes to the permanent and everlasting victory secured for us by our crucified and, and resurrected Savior. Chapter 20 begins with the words, and after the uproar had ceased. Luke is uh, referring us back to the near riot that he just told us about in chapter 19 that happened in the city of Ephesus when a very angry crowd of Artemis worshipers began clamoring for the arrest of Paul and his co-workers. That anger had arisen because the gospel of Jesus Christ had put a major dent in the business of several men led by a silversmith named Demetrius who, who made their income, their living, by selling statues of a false goddess, Artemis. The, the gospel 
really messed up their business. As the events unfolded, they stirred up the crowd so that it, it was a near riot. The, the city was yelling and chanting, great as Artemis of the Ephesians, and they were calling for, for Paul and his co-workers to be uh, treated very badly. But God had an unbeliever, the town clerk, protect Paul and his friends from further violence and, and to disperse that, that hostile crowd. Luke now proceeds in the first verses of chapter 20 to give us yet another of several travelogues of Paul's missionary journeys. And he picks up here, I've just put the map up, he picks up at Ephesus, and then he summarizes several months and hundreds of miles of Paul's travels in just a very few verses. We saw this happen in chapter 18, now we see it happening again where he's collapsing a whole lot of of activity by Paul and his companions over a lot of miles in just a few verses. After leaving Ephesus, Paul traveled northwest to Macedonia, and after visiting the churches in that province, he then continued south to Greece, it's also called Achaia, where he remained for three months, verse 3. That verse then tells us that Paul intended to set sail from Achaia to Syria, likely to visit Antioch on his way to Jerusalem. Antioch had been the home base, the starting point of each of his missionary journeys, but Jerusalem was his destination. Uh, Paul learned, though, before he left uh, to set sail, he learned that a plot had arisen to kill him, or arrest him at least, and this particular plot apparently involved grabbing Paul when he came to a port city to get on a ship. And I expect that port city was Sincrea, just southeast of Corinth. Instead of traveling by sea because of this plot, Paul then and his team, they headed due north on foot, retracing their steps through Macedonia to the city of Philippi and then setting sail across the Aegean Sea to Troas in western Asia Minor. When they reached Philippi, most of Paul's team went on ahead of him to Troas while Paul was ministering to the church there in Philippi. Now, we know from the book of Philippians that Paul's relationship with that particular church was very personal and very dear to Paul as he was to them. They had been the church that, uh, that was really the most generous of all the churches in their support of Paul's ministry. And they no doubt had generously contributed to the gift that Paul was now gathering to take to the saints in Jerusalem. If you read 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9, you find that it is at this point in time that every church that Paul goes to has collected money from the saints to provide for the, the very great needs of the church in Jerusalem the mother church, the starting church of this whole wildfire of the gospel, that church was the most heavily persecuted of all of them. And as a result, it was also stricken with great poverty. The believers were cast, at, cast outs. They were, they were pariahs in their own culture, and they were struggling to survive. And so Paul was gathering money from each of these churches to take to Jerusalem, and he his intent was to go there. That was, that was where he's headed in, in, through all of these events. In verse 4, Luke gives us a roster 
of Paul's marvelous band of brothers that God had gathered around Paul over the course of his three missionary journeys up to this point. And these men, they cover quite a gamut of different backgrounds and even of different economic backgrounds. Luke names a a list of names, and I could tell you some detail about each of them, but I'll I'll leave that for for you guys to look into. But the list includes long-term co-workers of Paul, like his beloved and highly trusted spiritual son, Timothy. And it also includes men with both Greek names and then others with Roman names. It even includes one man who was almost certainly a liberated slave. How do I know that? Well, some slave owners in this era in Rome, instead of using the the born name of a slave, would assign a number, especially to the slaves that were highest in their hierarchy, that, that were the most useful to them, numbers that for us would be first or second or third. Well, the name Secundus means second. And so this man was likely a freed slave, but his greatest liberation, of course, was not being liberated from, from slavery in the earthly realm, but being liberated from slavery to sin into the, the light of God in Christ. Uh, another great example of one of those men who had been a slave uh, and, and now freed and becomes a marvelous co-worker of Paul is Tertius. If you read the book of Romans in Romans 16.22, right at the end, Tertius, whose name means third, identifies himself as Paul's amanuensis, the one who wrote down the words that Paul dictated that we now have as the book of Romans. Okay. In every generation of Christ's church, God has called out people from every tribe and tongue and nation and every kind of economic background, from rich to poor to everything in between. And he has made each of them, all of them together, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Everything that belongs to Christ belongs to every believer in Christ. Oh, if we if we could only begin to comprehend the magnitude of that gift. And Christ alone has destroyed every barrier that exists between human beings. All of the things that used to separate these same men from one another, Jew, Gentile, slave, free, rich, poor, all of those barriers have been erased by Christ, and he has now made them all into one new man in Christ. That unity, beloved, is again one of the most magnificent gifts that we could possibly receive, and we must not, we must not take it lightly. When in Ephesians 4, when Paul tells us how to walk in a manner worthy of our calling, where does he begin? Be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, in love. For one another. That means guard it, protect it. We don't create that unity. God did, but he calls us to guard it. We get to enjoy, and we get to celebrate, and we get to guard that miraculous oneness every day of our lives as the people of God, looking forward to the day when we will soon stand side by side in his kingdom, beholding his glory and his beauty forever. In verses 7 through 12 of Acts 20, Luke 
radically changes the pace of his narrative. At this point, we are in Troas. He's come from across the Aegean Sea from Philippi to Troas. Um, again, in verses 1 through 3, Paul just, he just went through this travelogue uh, that took Paul from Ephesus to Macedonia to Greece and then back up to Macedonia and across the Aegean back to Troas. Hundreds of miles, many months in three verses, okay? But now, with Paul once again in the port city of Troas, Luke radically changes the pace of his narrative, and beloved, that's supposed to get our attention. He did the same thing at the end of Acts chapter 18. Now that Paul is in Troas, Luke slams on the narrative breaks. And I'll say once again, guys, when you see this happen, when you see this radical shift, dramatic shift in the pacing of a narrative, and it slows down and zeroes in on one event, we're supposed to pay attention. This is Bible Study Methods 101, okay? In verses 7 through 12, Luke covers the events of a single evening, night, and morning. And again, this change from a 60,000-foot flyover to a very detailed account of a single night tells us, pay attention. Verse 7 says, On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul began talking to them, to the saints at Troas, intending to depart the next day. And he prolonged his message until midnight. Everybody catch that? There are a few things we shouldn't miss here. Paul started, he started a message in the evening after a shared meal, and he kept preaching until midnight. And he wasn't finished when his message became very decisively interrupted. So the first thing we must not miss here, I think you all are getting it by the laughter, is that my sermons really aren't all that long. And to my knowledge, none of them has ever been fatal. And seriously, the first thing that we should note from verse 7 is that the gathering of the saints happened on the first day of the week. In the first generation of Christ's church, as now, we, the redeemed of the Lord, gather together every Sunday. It wasn't even called Sunday then. It's the first day of the week. It's actually called the after Sabbath day. That was the, 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 what the word actually means in Greek. The Jewish Sabbath was from twilight on Friday to twilight on Saturday. Now they're meeting on Sunday, in fact, in the evening, because they worked during the day. This was a very significant change from the tradition that many of the earliest believers in Jesus, the Jewish believers, had known all their lives. So why Sunday? Well, it's simple. The church gathers on the day each week when Jesus was resurrected. We say that Easter is Resurrection Day. Guys, every Sunday is Resurrection Day. And every Sunday we gather to break bread. And this is the second thing that we need to notice in verse 7. When the saints gathered, it was to break bread. Now, I very much agree with the commentators and preachers who see this as an actual meal. Christian fellowship in the New Testament is inseparable 
from dining together. You think we like potlucks? But I also very much believe that the reference here to the breaking of bread, just as at the end of chapter 1, focuses on the Lord's table. I have no doubt that at some point during the course of the fellowship meal that happened on this, this Sunday that's spoken of in this passage, the people of God remembered the death of Jesus and looked forward to the return of Jesus through the celebration of the Lord's table, just as we at Community Bible Chapel have done every time we gather on Sunday for almost 50 years. Consider this for a moment. Under the law of Moses, the sign of God's covenant with Moses, the sign known as the Sabbath, was observed every week. And on every Sabbath, there were many specific ceremonies, observances, that every Jew participated in directly or by observation, watching what the priests were doing. And all of those signs pointed to Christ and to the perfect covenant in Christ's blood. Beloved, why would we think, why would we think that the sign of the covenant given to the church directly by our Lord Jesus on the, on the night that he was arrested, the sign that pictures the perfect fulfillment of all of those old covenant signs, the sign that represents his body given for us and his blood poured out for us and that eagerly anticipates his soon return in glory to claim us as his bride, why would we think that that remembrance would be celebrated less often than the Sabbath? Why would we think that it's no big deal, as so many churches do, to observe that marvelous sign once a month, or like some churches do, once a quarter, or like some churches do, once a year. That, guys, trivializes something that Jesus called sacred. It's just a symbol, but that to which it points is so very much the heart of our lives in Christ, of our life in Christ, that for us to neglect it or to treat it as common or to treat it as something that shouldn't, shouldn't be bothered with except every now and then, I think that grieves the Holy Spirit. And I'm thankful for this church. I'm thankful for, the, for the, what I see as the devotion to the things that matter to God that I find here. In verse 8, Luke provides a bit of detail that helps explain the stunning event that immediately follows. A sizable group of believers was gathered together in a third-story room of a building in Troas to worship together, to fellowship together, to observe the Lord's table, and to hear Paul's teaching. Luke, speaking in the first-person plural, says, there were many lamps in that upper room where we were gathered together. Now, why would Luke mention a bunch of lamps? Just before telling us about an event in which a young man fell asleep while sitting in a windowsill of that third floor room and plunged to his death. Why would he talk about lamps? Well, based on verse 6, first let's talk about the timing of this event. On verse, based on verse 6, we know this this event happened after the Feast of Unleavened Bread, 
which was observed during the seven days right after Passover, and that it happened before the Feast of Pentecost, which, by the way, Paul was hurrying to get to in Jerusalem at this point. The Feast of Unleavened Bread happened every year around early April, and Pentecost happened 50 days after the end of the, of the unleavened, observance of unleavened bread that came after the Passover. So that means that, that means that Pentecost happened somewhere around mid to late May. In case you didn't know it, that part of the world gets really hot and that city gets really humid at that time of year because Troas is a port city. It's right on the coast of the Aegean. So the, the event that happened in this passage happened in a very warm part of the year and in the very humid seaport of Troas. The many lamps that Luke's makes mention of were not the nice, cool LED variety that we enjoy today. There weren't even the hot incandescent lamps that most of us grew up with. They were lamps that created light by combusting flammable fuel that saturated a wick, and they produced a ton of heat. When you put a bunch of those lamps in one room, you deprive that room of a good bit of the oxygen in the room, and you heat up the room very substantially. I think it's pretty clear Luke includes this little, little snippet of detail about the many lamps, so we'll understand one of the reasons that Eutychus, this young man, fell asleep and fell to his death while Paul was preaching that night. See, Luke is, is saying, don't blame it on Paul. <laughs> now, granted, it was a long sermon, a whole lot longer than any preacher would get away with in the present world of 30-minute radio-ready sermons today, but, but what put Eutychus to sleep wasn't that Paul's preaching was terminally boring. And don't miss the fact that Luke's narrative of the actual miracle here consumes only one verse of this passage. Verse 10. Luke does not linger on the miracle, and Paul does not make much of the miracle. He falls upon the dead body of Eutychus, and Eutychus is brought back to life. This isn't CPR, guys. Eutychus was dead. Paul said earlier that at one point he was, he was left presumed dead. That's not what he says here after Paul was stoned. He didn't die. This boy died. He was picked up dead. Luke laid upon him just like, just like Elijah and Elisha had done he was acting in the tradition of the prophets, and God used Paul to raise this, this boy, this young man from the dead. Now, I'm convinced uh, that a big part of the reason that neither Luke nor Paul makes a whole lot about the, the, the miracle here is because the people in this gathering were believers, Believers don't need miracles in order to believe. Let me say that again. Believers don't need miracles in order to believe. And I should add that unbelievers who know God's word, like the Jews did, shouldn't need miracles. In Luke 16.31, at the end of the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, Jesus attributes 
a, a rebuke to Abraham. He says, here's what Abraham said. He said, when the, when the man, the, the, the rich man asked if he could go back and tell some of his friends about, about where he was and how bad it was, Jesus said, no. He said, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. See, what he was saying is if the, if the word of God isn't enough, miracles not going to help. For unbelievers, the word of God should be enough, but isn't. But beloved, for believers, the word of God must be enough. For believers, God's miraculous works, his miracles, confirm and encourage. But they don't save, except in the most temporary sense. They saved this boy from physical death for a while. And then he grew up and he got old and he died. The greatest miracle that God ever does on this earth after the resurrection of Jesus is the salvation of a sinner. Did you know that? Did you ever think about that? God could move mountains. He could cause earthquakes. He could do anything else. Those would be minor compared to the salvation of one sinner. That's a miracle. Saving me was an incredible work. But these people gathered in this third-story room in Troas were already saved. So the miracle that brought Eutychus back to life was just a brief interruption to an evening that was focused on the Word of God before the miracle and after the miracle. Paul spent the rest of the night talking with these believers. It was the last time he was going to see them. For us who have already crossed over out of eternal death into eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ alone, miracles are occasional reminders from God that corroborate what we already know and believe, but they don't make us believe. If they do, we've got a problem. A Christian who thinks that he or she needs a miracle to jolt him into zealously trusting in and following Jesus is A, wrong, because the miracle he's hoping for won't get the job done, and B, he's very, if he's a Christian, he's a very immature Christian. Mature faith that is anchored to the word of Christ is a far more blessed condition than immature faith. And yet so very many Christians settle for immature faith that looks much more to experience than it does to the word of the only one who exists, who can be trusted. That's why Jesus said to his disciples right after proving to Thomas what Thomas should have already been convinced of. He said, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Thomas said, show me the holes. Let me feel the wounds. And Jesus let him do that. That was a condescension. But Jesus said, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. You know, Thomas already had the witness of dozens of generations of the prophets of God to tell him that Jesus had to suffer and die and be raised from the dead to pay the debt of sinners. And then Jesus told his disciples the same thing multiple times. Thomas didn't need to touch the wounds of the resurrected Jesus to be convinced of these things. He needed to listen to the witness of the Father to the Son. 
In John 5, 24, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is already crossed over out of death into life. How? By believing the Father's witness to the Son. Not by asking for more miracles. As we've seen over and over in our study of Acts, Luke often provides a progress report after telling us about a major event in the birth and life of the early church. He especially does so after telling of a miraculous event. Luke especially provides progress reports after telling us of a miraculous intervention of God and of the proclamation of Jesus that is linked to that that miracle. Most of the progress reports in the book of Acts are about people getting saved and the church growing in numbers. Paul says 3,000 were saved on that day of Pentecost. And he talks over and over about how the word of God was prospering and the church is spreading and the, and the, the, the church is growing. But his progress report here is not about anyone getting saved. The passage ends with this. Here's the progress report, verses 11 and 12. And when he, Paul, had gone back up, up to the third story after, after being used by God to resurrect Eutychus, after he had gone back up and had broken the bread and eaten, he talked with them for a long while until daybreak. So now he preached until midnight, and now he keeps talking with them until morning. And then he departed, and they took away the boy alive and were greatly comforted. Nobody got saved. Everybody got comforted. And the Greek word here, parakaleo, it means encouraged. See, it's not comfort just to make you feel good. It's comfort to in-courage you. It's comfort to impart courage to live well for Christ. That's what real Christian encouragement always is. It's not just a pat on the back. It's it's a building up. It is an edification and fortification to carry on. I said a moment ago that for believers, miracles are occasional reminders, encouragements from God that corroborate what we already know and already believe. So what's the reminder here? Like Jesus' raising of Lazarus in John 11, the great encouragement for the believers gathered in Troas this night came in the form of a pointer to the single most comforting thing that any believer will ever know. And that is that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And everyone who believes in him will live even if he dies. In 1 Thessalonians 4 verses 13 to 17, Paul shares with the church the beautiful promise of the glorious coming resurrection from the dead of all who trust in Christ And then immediately of the resurrection of those who are still alive on that same day when Jesus returns with the blast of the trumpet and the shout of an archangel. Paul says in 1 Thess that when that incomparable day comes, all who have trusted in Jesus will be caught up together with Jesus and all all the redeemed saints in the clouds to be with Christ from that point forward. We're going to hear that trumpet, and we're going to hear that that angel shout, and we're going to be raised up out of our graves if we've died, or if we're still standing, we're going to be raised up from the earth, and we're going to meet Christ in the clouds, and we're going to be with him forever. 
and we're going to be in resurrected bodies that were sown mortal and raised immortal, that were sown perishable and raised imperishable. And thus we will always be with the Lord in Christ. Beloved, that's comfort. That's comfort. That same passage that tells us those things about the about that day when the, when the trumpet blast happens, it ends with this verse, 1 Thess 4.18. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Encourage each other. Build each other up. Fortify one another to live the Christian life boldly. Because whatever happens to us here on this earth can't even touch our real well-being. Because that well-being is all about what's going to happen when Jesus returns. 1 Peter 1.13 says we are to gird up our minds in Christ, fixing our hope completely on the grace to be brought to us at the revelation of Christ. In other words, our only hope, all of our hope, is fixed on something that hasn't happened yet. Hope that is seen is not hope. The Christian life always looks forward and upward to that day. That's our comfort. That, is the anchor. that hope is the anchor of our soul all the time. There is no greater comfort for a child of God. And by the way, that is the most practical thing that you'll ever know. People always want application. That's good. We're supposed to, we're supposed to affect our lives. But guys, that hope, that hope gets us through every day with joy, with delight, with power, with purpose. We know what's going to happen. We know our Father's plan. The temporary resurrection of Eutychus from the dead in this passage was just a sign. It was a vivid reminder to turn the attention of this group of believers to the permanent resurrection that God has promised to every man, woman, and child who trusts in Jesus. And that resurrection, of course, proceeds inexorably from the resurrection that is the very bedrock of the Christian faith, and that is Christ's resurrection. He is the first fruits and we are the latter fruits. We know we will be raised because he was raised. I would submit that every single time in the Bible, in either testament, when God raises a person from physical death back to physical life, or when he just plucks a person right, who's standing right up off the earth and into heaven like happened with Enoch and Elijah, in every case, God is pointing to the one resurrection upon which all Resurrection is grounded, and that is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. God is timeless. One more thing I want to point out that's again tied to the small amount of space that the miracle gets in this passage. This came up in our Wednesday discussion. I've been thinking about it a lot since. There is a stark difference in the way true ambassadors of Christ, like Peter and Paul, approach miraculous events and the way fake pretended ambassadors of Christ approach those same events. This is a big deal, guys. The imposters always put the focus on the miracle, and above all, they put their focus on themselves as the miracle workers. It's because they want you to write them checks. They, they dec declare how very specially anointed they are of God. Let me ask you, is that what the prophets and apostles did? No. 
We've already seen a number of episodes in our study of Acts that bear this out. When the person performing a miracle is anyone other than Jesus, the miracle is never used to draw special attention to the person through whom God performed the miracle, except to confirm that that person bears the authority from God to speak and act on Christ's behalf. And that makes perfect sense because that person is an agent, and agents don't represent themselves. When you hire a real estate agent to help you sell and buy a home, he does most of the legwork. He represents you. He doesn't represent himself. Okay? By, by definition, that's what an agent does. He acts on someone else's behalf. I've said numerous times in this study, the twofold purpose of every miracle done through mortal men in both testaments is to confirm the authority of the messenger of God in order to focus attention on the message of God. And that message is always, when you finish everything out, it's always about Christ. I'm going to cite one example real quick, and that's from Acts chapter 3 that we already saw. When the Holy Spirit miraculously healed a man lame from birth through Peter, Peter spoke of the miracle only to credit Jesus for it, to draw attention to the message that Jesus is the Christ who had been promised through the prophets in God's word for many generations. And then Peter explicitly and emphatically denied that the power that healed that man had anything to do with him. In Acts 3.12, Peter said, Men of Israel, why do you marvel at this, or why do you gaze at us as if by our own power or piety we had made this man walk? And then Peter declared that the explicit purpose of the miracles was so that the God of our fathers would glorify his servant Jesus whom those men of Israel had delivered up and disowned. And finally, Peter said to them, it is on the basis of faith in his name, Jesus' name, it is the name of Jesus which, which has strengthened this man whom you see and know. And the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect health in the presence of you all. Again, miracles are always pointers. They are signs. And that to which the signs point is the word of God, the word of the Lord, and the Lord to whom that word bears witness, Jesus. All right, so any time that someone claims that it, is, that it is something special about himself that makes him able to perform a miracle, you know without a doubt that that man or woman is a fake and is unworthy of any attention at all. The flip side of this same coin, and this applies to every one of us, is that any time a professing Christian devotes undue emphasis or attention to a miraculous event that he has witnessed or that happened to him while making little of the word of Christ or of the Christ of the word, you know without a doubt that that professing Christian is missing the point of the miracle if a miracle even occurred. Some of you have met people who profess to believe in Jesus, but what they actually talk about ad nauseum is not who Jesus is and what he did for sinners like, like him. What consumes their attention, what they talk about over and over, 
is the extraordinary experience that they claim they had at some point. I've run into several people like this. When you come across someone like that, you know for a fact that at best, that person is a very immature believer and needs to be pointed to the Word of God, to the power of the Spirit working through the Word. It's fascinating to me that one of the conditions for sainthood in the Roman Catholic Church is that some miraculous event must be associated with the person who is given the title of saint. The same is true of places that the Roman Catholic Church labels as holy. Some miraculous event has to have happened in that place. But the point of miracles in the Bible is never the specialness of the human instrument through whom the miracle was performed or of the place in which the miracle occurred. The point is Jesus. I should also mention in every part of the New Testament, Every man, woman, and child who trusts in Jesus, God calls a saint. Saint means a holy one. And you and I, as we celebrated in our worship this morning, we are holy, righteous, perfect in the eyes of God because of what Jesus did for us. Brothers and sisters, God calls us at all times to keep our eyes on just one person, Jesus, the author and finisher of of faith. He calls us to find our only hope in the grace to be brought to us at the glorious return of Jesus to claim his bride. And he calls us to make his incarnate word our one legitimate obsession and his written word the greatest habit of our lives. Every experience that we have in our lives must be subjected to that word. Every claim of any human being must be subjected to that word. We must let the word richly dwell in our hearts. Then we'll be ready for God to use us whenever he determines to do so. Loving Father, thank you for this, this uh, little miracle that you performed in this passage. To the world, it's, it's astonishing, and, and many would find it, the, they would think that this young man would, would, should talk only about this for the rest of his life, but that's not what you've called us to talk about, Lord. A temporary exception from the, the curse that we deserve is nothing. It's minor. It might get our attention, but only, only to point us to the one whose resurrection is our resurrection, only to the one whose blood and righteousness is our only qualification ever to stand in the presence and kingdom of the perfectly holy and perfectly righteous God. We give all the credit and all the glory to him. Father, we pray that, that by your doing in us, we would never take our eyes off of Jesus. We ask it in his precious name. Amen.